Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investment. In this episode, we're going to be discussing pension reforms after the government struck a deal with a number of the biggest investment firms, which could result in 5% of pension fund investments going into private equity, which are unlisted companies. Joining me this week is Alice Guy, Interactive Investors, Head of Pensions and Savings, and we're going to pick through the pros and cons of these reforms and explain the different levels of risk within private equity. But before we get to that, Alice, could you put some more meat on the bone regarding where these reforms have come from and why they're happening? So there's, these have been a little while in the making. There's been an issue for a while with um, the fact that the old-fashioned final salary pensions that a lot of people used to have they used to invest quite heavily in UK equities. In the 90s, they were actually over 50% invested in the UK stock market. And over time, for a variety of reasons, they've de-risked. And so they've gradually sold out of equities, particularly out of UK equities. And we're at a point where in 2022, only 2% of um, final salary pensions were invested in UK equities. So um, final salary pensions, which are otherwise known as defined benefit pensions, are currently 1.5 trillion worth of assets. So even though most of us who are still working don't have this type of pension, it's still a really big player in the market. Now, most of us have defined contribution pensions now, and that's the type where you save into a pension pot and you build up your pension pot over time. And at the moment, those pensions, those DC pensions are worth half a trillion. But by 2030, we expect them to have gone up to 1.3 trillion. So basically the same amount as the DB pensions. At the moment, most people with that type of pension scheme are investing in a default fund. So they're about 70% investing in equities if they're about 20 years away from retirement. But a lot of those equities will be global equities. A small proportion will be UK equities. And they will all be more or less all be listed companies at the moment. So you, your FTSE 100 companies, your S&P 500 type companies. What the government are looking to do is to increase the investment in startup UK companies and also private companies that aren't listed on the stock exchange. And the hope is that that will boost growth in the UK economy over time. And they've been looking at this type of reform for a while. I mean, it's still not like set in stone, but this is the first time we've started to see some meat on the bones of what that could look like and what it could mean for people's pensions. They're only looking at the DC pensions, though, that are workplace pensions at the moment. So this does not affect SIPs. It would just affect kind of the workplace pensions, which are under something called master trust. That's just the way that the legal structure works to them. And it's completely different and under different regulations to a SIP. That's the type of pension that we have at Interactive Investor. The initiative, you know, it's got plenty of support. Nine of the UK's largest defined contribution pension providers, they voluntarily pledged to allocate 5% of assets in their default funds, the workplace pension that you mentioned, to unlisted equities by 2030. Potentially, we're going to see Billions of pounds go into fast-growing UK companies. Um, and, you know, we'll, come, we'll touch on this further in a moment, but you know, whenever there's talk of potential higher returns, this comes with high levels of risk. I think it's important to make the point that there are no guarantees that you know, if you have 5% of your pension in private equity, 
that you're going to get a better outcome for that. As we all know, investment returns cannot be guaranteed. Found it quite surprising, you know, some of the comments that um, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt made because he said that these reforms will boost retirement income by over a thousand pounds a year for the typical earner over the course of their career. When, you know, on every single bit of marketing literature there is associated with investment, there's, you know, past performance is no guide to the future. So I think it's important to take that with a pinch of salt. The drivers behind these reforms make a lot of sense from the government's perspective. It's going to be good for the economy and for tax revenues if more capital goes into innovative UK companies. In terms of people saving into pensions, the workplace pensions, as you mentioned, Alice, I suppose, you know, if you've got 5% in private equity, then this does give you additional diversification. So that's one of the main pros that I can think of. Yeah. And I think you mentioned that this thousand pounds that Jeremy Hunt has said that it will increase people's retirement incomes by. Um, it's important to remember that thousand pound is of a reasonably small pot as well, because a lot of people don't manage to have huge pension pots by the time they retire. They're actually looking at potentially a 12% increase in your returns from this type of investment, which I think is, you know, based on historic returns from private equity. And as you say, is is not guaranteed. But in general, it, it can be a good idea to have a small part of your portfolio in, in these higher risk type um, private equity investments. The wider issue is whether people really understand what they're investing in, because 95% of people with workplace pension are in the default fund. For those people, a lot of whom might have a low risk appetite, it might be that if they were to unwrap it and see what was in within their pension, they might say, well, actually, I only want one or 2% in that kind of um, wrapper and not necessarily go for 5%, which it might be too much for some people. And I think this is where with engaged investors, you know, you can actually choose and you can pick and say, actually, I do want that much in private equity, but I might have it in a private equity fund that's spread out across Europe, like HG Capital, as an example, is spread across companies in Europe. It isn't just purely UK. So you can you can pick and choose much more to suit your risk appetite. For me, that's that's one of the issues that this is it's going to default people into this type of fund. Timescale is important as well because, you know, I think if you're a couple of years away from retirement, then you really want to increase risk at that point. I mean, I think it's different if you're younger and you're starting out, if you're in your 20s or your 30s and you've got, you know, 30 or 40 years to, to go to grow, you know, to grow your pension pot over that time period. You may be happy to have, you know, 5% in private equity, which may include some more like sort of startup firms in the hope that you know over time that that will yield greater rewards but what comes with it is high risk and i think certainly if you're approaching retirement you mightn't want to be sort of defaulted into having five percent exposure to this area yeah i guess we don't know a huge amount yet about the detail and i guess more will become clear about that at the moment it's very broad brush so it is possible that they would look at different rules for people in different stages of their retirement journey Certainly, that would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? Because as I mentioned, at the moment, the default is is more or less, um, is on average about 70% in equities if people are 20 years from retirement. So people are often life, they call it lifestyling, but basically gradually de-risking and buying more bonds as they move towards their chosen retirement date. And in terms of companies that are not listed, there's a whole range of different types of exposures and risk levels in this space. So I think it's important to 
not tar it all with the same brush. Nowadays, a lot more companies are choosing to stay private for longer. There's various reasons why they do this. Among them is that, you know, if you're a young business that's, you know, growing, then if you, if you decide to list on the stock market, then that comes with a lot of regulatory scrutiny. And then if you, know, if you, if you, if you go in the business and you miss certain targets, then your shareholders and the market can take a dim view of that. And then it can cause your share price to fall quite notably if you're not meeting expectations. Whereas if you're not listed, arguably you've got more sort of time and space to, to grow the business without any other sort of outside interference. But the main risk with investing in private equity is the liquidity risk. But to get around this, investment trusts, um, Alice mentioned HG Capital as an example. This is a much better structure than open-ended funds for private equity due to the fact that investment trusts are closed-ended, so therefore have a stable base of assets. Whereas open-ended funds, if there's a sudden rush to the exits, then open-ended funds, they have to sell assets. And in terms of um, unlisted exposure, there's a 10% limit the funds can have in these companies. That doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, I think still in the memory of a lot of people, what happened to Neil Woodford's fund that had illiquid holdings. You know, when there was a big rush to the exits for that fund, it proved very problematic. And you know, we all know what happened next. However, with investment trusts, the trade-off is that at times of heavy selling, the share price will take the strain and an investment trust can fall onto a pretty notable discount. And as I mentioned earlier, with private equity, it's important to not tar it all with the same brush. It's not just about investing in companies that are just starting out. That's just one part of private equity. And that's the part of private equity that is the riskiest area, arguably, called venture capital investing. So this is where investors take minority positions in early companies, typically in the technology and healthcare sectors. But then at the other end of the risk spectrum, there's private equity or buyout investors. So what they do here is they take majority control of companies that are generating a lot of cash, they're profitable, and they're more mature businesses than the venture capital companies I've just mentioned. And among investment trusts, there's two sectors. So there's growth capital. And then there's private equity. So growth capital investment trusts, they typically invest in companies that are more mature than the venture capital funded businesses. But generally, they focus on companies that are smaller and less mature than the businesses that private equity investment trusts focus on. If you compare the two, growth capital investment trusts, they are generally more riskier than the investment trusts that you'll see in the private equity investment trust sector. If you don't want to have exposure to private equity, you know, if by 2030, you don't want to be sort of be defaulted into having 5% exposure. What you can do is you can take control of your own investment and change the default fund or, you know, open a self-invested personal pension and make the decisions yourself. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think this is the beauty of being able to choose your own investments. It's, it's quite surprising in a way that so many people are in the default fund like 95, 96% of people, you know, you don't necessarily have to move to a SIP. As you say, you can just change your default within your workplace pension if you're not ready to make that step. In terms of my own experience, I mean, I when, when I first got my workplace pension, it took me several months to switch the default funds. And I was actually really surprised when I came to switch it that I was putting some sort of balanced managed multi-asset funds and I had 60% in equities, 40% in bonds. So I suppose the, the classic sort of split, really, in terms of asset allocation. And were you like in your 20s at that time? 
yeah, I was like early to mid twenties and so it just really wasn't appropriate for the fact that, you know, I wasn't gonna access the pension for I don't know, thirty five years at that point. Um might be longer by the time I, I get to it if the age keeps on going up. I took it all into my own hands and, you know, the, the I, I then opted for it was actually a passively managed pension fund that I went for back then. It was a hundred percent to equities. You know, I think over that sort of time period, you know, markets they do fall and rise over the time, but I think that's a very long period to um to be comfortable with having that level of risk. Yeah, and I think um, research has shown as well that there's a huge range of performance even with, within default funds. So, you know, just because you're in the default doesn't necessarily mean that's the best option for you. And as you say, you might have a completely different risk appetite than than the um, default fund. Balance managed often means that traditional sort of 60-40 um, asset split between equities and bonds. Part of the drive behind um these reforms is to you know get more capital back into uk companies um you know those, those companies that are you know that are private at the moment that are um, you know trying to grow but what these reforms don't address is the fact that um the uk listed market has become less attractive for pensions this initiative is not going to result in money going into say the mid and small cap part of the uk listed market which arguably are also starved of capital. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And um, you know, as you say, like the cutoff is ones that are unlisted. So anything that's listed, but be that small cap or make or or mid cap, isn't going to be affected. Um, I think often when, particularly as people move into the retirement part of their sort of savings journey, a lot of people actually do tend to tilt their investments um, more towards UK investments. It's certainly something that that we see that some of the investment trusts that are UK focused are quite popular and the UK equity um, space tends to be often established companies that are relatively low risk and and a good dividend pairs as well historically. Well, in terms of the exposure, I mean, I suppose 5%, it's not, it's not a massive amount. It doesn't ring potential alarm bells, really. I mean, I think with any Sort of investments. I mean, as I even question, is five percent enough to move the dial? It, pro- it probably is. Actually, I think you know. I think you've got investments that are one or two percent of your overall, you know, pension or ISA. That mightn't be enough to actually make a difference one way or the other. But I think five percent probably will make a difference one way or the other. And for me personally, I don't have any exposure to private equity, but I wouldn't rule it out. And I think it's actually one of the ways in which. Um, Active fund management does add value because you can't get exposure to it via a passive fund. Yeah, and it's just looking for those little ways to add a little bit. Hopefully, that's the theory anyway, isn't it? That you want to kind of be able to beat the market by having those slightly more um, juicy different parts in your investment portfolio. Well, another thing perhaps to mention is charges. You know, it's not all being ironed out yet. Just in the case of... um, private equity investment trusts, they, they tend to be more expensive than, say, an investment trust buying UK equities. And some of the private equity investment trusts have um, performance fees as well. It, it is a wait and see. We don't know at this point, but you'd think that having some exposure to private, private equity in a default fund, it will push up costs. So um, we know that the government have already relaxed the rules on the charge cap. At the moment, there's a 0.75% charge cap, and that covers everything within your pension. 
And that's the most they're allowed to charge. But they've already said that this is going to be outside of that charge cap. So that was part of the first hint that we kind of knew this was coming. They've talked about well-designed performance fees, they've called it. I'm not sure what that's going to mean in reality. So, yes, they are likely to be considerably higher, aren't they? It involves a lot more active management than sort of having some sort of tracking type fund. You know, they've got to go in there and pick which smaller companies they think are going to be successful. And there's a lot, a lot more research involved. I think there's like a lot of question marks as to how this is going to work in practice. They're going to obviously have to get specialist people in to run it. And there's also the issue that there's going to be £50 billion worth of assets suddenly being pumped into this relatively small part of the market. So how is that going to work in practice? Who's going to run it? What are the fees going to be? I think all these kind of questions will kind of come out over time as we see what it's going to mean in practice. Well, I think over time, it's a topic we're going to have to revisit at some point, Alice. And um, maybe in 20 years, we can both come back on and see how these uh, reforms get on. And hopefully they've boosted our pensions. Who knows? Well, fingers crossed. And thanks to Alice. And thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. If you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you want us to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investment on the Interact Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.